Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Now, what else do we have here? Oh, this, this is a good one. I've got to talk about this one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. We've got some great questions today and a couple of corrections, perhaps. So let's just dive right into them. This is from Lance. Ron, how can I tell if a barrel is burned out or is heavily used when I'm looking at it at a gun store? Example, a used 270 WSM. How can I tell if it had too many rounds to it? Uh, since it's such a fast bullet. Thank you, and I really enjoy your channel. Well, thanks, Lance. Now, first of all, the fast bullet really doesn't matter that much. It's not the speed of the bullet that's burning out your barrel. It's not even the erosion of the bullet on the barrel steel. It's the heat of the gas, the powder-burning heat right at the throat. So what you want to check is the throat and the lead sort of the same thing as that area just in front of the chamber where the rifling begins. So the rifling sort of actually ramps up into the bore, the land diameters, and that's where you're going to see the wear. And it's heat cracking, essentially, a little bit of chemical action going on there as well. But to see that, what do you do? It's pretty hard to crawl inside of a chamber unless it's a great big cannon. So you need to get yourself a bore scope. I have for years and years now been using the Hawkeye Borescope, which is, I guess these days, old school because it's its own device, a little flashlight with a magnifier on it and a long rod that slides into your barrel. And man, you can really get some up close and personal looks down the bore. You can look in the chamber. You can look at that lead throat area. You can look good nine inches down into the barrel itself. Wonderful little tool. Pretty pricey. And I see these days they have some little attachments for, of course, your smartphone. You can plug these things in, use their software, and then shove the little flexible tube down into your bore and look at things that way. And it'll show up on the screen, I guess. You can take pictures and videos and everything else. It'll be in your smartphone. And those are fairly inexpensive. I've seen them for as little as, what, 30, 40 bucks. Um, so you might want to try one of those. But that's the best advice I can get you for seeing inside. And you are on the right track with the fast bullets in that to get a fast bullet, you have to have a lot of powder burning behind it. And so yeah, it's kind of the same thing. I just didn't want anyone to come away thinking that the bullet going really, really fast is what was wearing out the rifling. It's the heat primarily. Great. Now here's a correction from uh, Nilas. Uh, this has something to do with my 
<laughs> my attempts to describe Coriolis effects and whatnot, he says, hey, the atmosphere is indeed rotating at the same speed of the earth. I said it wasn't. I said the earth is turning, the air isn't, the bullet's up in the air, therefore the earth spins out from underneath the bullet, stuff like that. Um, but I, I wasn't thinking because as Anila says here, yeah, the air is moving. Otherwise, <laughs> the, the air would constantly be blowing at about 1,037 miles an hour. That would be a pretty windy day. <laughs> so, sure, that just makes perfect sense. The rotation of the earth, the atmosphere is moving with it. Winds are blowing from different directions, and that's mostly a heating issue. Uh, the sun heats the air. It rises. It flows. It drops, and it changes things, and the weather's pretty complicated that way. But, yeah, <laughs> I don't think we have any 1,000-mile-an-hour winds at the equator to worry about because the earth is spinning while the air above it is not. That would make it pretty rough. Good one, Nilas. Now, here is a question from Todd. My main reason for contacting you is to get your thoughts on the 277 Fury cartridge. How does it compare to the 270 Winchester? And how does it compare to the 6.8 Winchester? Ah, that might make a good this versus that video. Yeah, I think I've done a video on the uh, 277 versus the 6.8 and the 270. Or at least I know I've done them on the 6.8 Western versus the 270 Winchester. The 277 Fury cartridge isn't really shooting any faster than the 270 Winchester in its current rifle formats. The rifle they build for it has a short barrel. Perhaps they're making longer ones now, but the original one was short. What they were trying to do is get a cartridge that would function in short, efficient military applications. This was a project for the military. So they wanted a short, handy rifle with a short barrel, but they wanted to reach the ballistic performance of the 270 Winchester. They did that with the 277 Fury cartridge. First of all, the cartridge itself is essentially the 308 Winchester size, neck down, but it was also given a steel head so that it can take more pressures. They decided higher pressure is what they were going to get their velocity from, not longer barrels or bigger powder compartments. And that's what they achieved. So they have the 80,000 PSI pressure standard, and that is able to drive your typical 130, 140 grain bullets, the same velocities as your 270 Winchester would, but they do it in a 16, 16 and a half inch barrel. So extend that as a hunter, as a sport shooter, you extend your barrel length to 22 inches and you're going to pick up velocity. Then the 277 Fury would be faster than the 270 Winchester, probably uh, maybe a little bit faster than the 6.8. I haven't run any data tests on it. I haven't had a rifle to shoot that round in yet. But I would guess if you had a 22 to 24 inch barrel, you can pretty much figure to pick up on an average 20 uh, feet per second per inch of barrel. You can kind of use that as a rough standard. Some cartridges will do 50 feet per second. In a few cases, as much as 75. Um, it just depends on the, the length and powder supply that you're burning and uh, the burn rate of the powder and the weight of the bullet and a lot of other things will affect it. But I've just always found that if a guy sort of roughly figures 30 feet per second increased velocity for every added inch of barrel so you can do the math on that and figure it out but that the higher pressure in that 277 is a little bit intriguing because i think it will allow us to develop more cartridges that will drive bullets faster using less powder at higher pressures um 
but it'll be interesting to see if rifle manufacturers make the rifles to withstand those pressures or what's exactly required for that. So uh, something to look forward to in the future here. All right, this is uh, from Tom. And Tom says, hey, I use a, a Winchester Legacy 94E. That would be a Model 94 lever action. I'm not sure what the E stands for. With a 26-inch long barrel. Wow. Am I getting more velocity than the standard length barrels? Well, Tom, I'd say you are. Um, exactly how much? I don't know. Um, generally, the 3030 Winchester, when it first came out, and for quite a few years, they were always giving numbers based on a 24-inch barrel. So when they said it was throwing hundred and 50 grain bullet, 2,400 feet per second, pretty roughly right in that category. That was from a 24-inch barrel. We mostly shoot 22 to 20-inch barrels, especially in our Model 94 carbines that are so popular as a brush rifle because they're so handy. And you're getting down around 2,150 to 2,200 feet per second. So you're looking at 100 to 200 feet per second difference in those two to four inches of barrel length. Talking about barrel length again. Um, so, yeah, I would imagine that a 26-inch barrel, you would probably still have enough going on there to get a little more velocity over the 24, but you're going to start to lose it. There's not a lot of powder in that 30-30 case, so you're going to burn that up fairly quickly, and I don't think you're going to pick up a lot more velocity by going from a 24 to a 26. And I would guess by about 28, you would start to reach that point where the added friction is actually going to reduce your velocity. But I can't say for sure with the 30-30. Again, the bullet weight will make a difference in the, the pressures to which it's loaded and different things. But yeah, good thinking. I say you would definitely be getting higher velocities than the, the measurements from a 20-inch barrel. That's for certain. The interesting thing about that is what is the value of it? You know, when I was thinking about this now, a 3030's real value is in its compact platform. It's considered a 150-yard deer cartridge, maybe 200. Is there a huge advantage in getting a few more feet per second out of it with a longer barrel? You give up the convenience of that short barrel carbine in the woods for a little more velocity, but it doesn't really do you a lot of good because you're still using those blunt, flat-nosed, round-nosed bullets that don't have high ballistics coefficient, so they're not aerodynamically efficient, and you drop fairly quickly anyway. So you really don't gain that much by having a higher muzzle velocity. Uh, I think you're better off using that 30-30 in those short rifles for which it's just been perfectly balanced all these decades. And if you want more reach, more velocity, I think you need to switch to something that'll shoot a spire point bullet that's more efficient. Step up to the 308, but you can even use the like the 300 blackout or the what's that Wilson 300 hammer, that new hammer. It's pretty darn efficient, so you've got some better options there. Okay, uh, John. John asks something about the 350 Legend. Oh, we saw the video I did on the 350 Legend. Hey, how does a person ensure that the ledge in the barrel where the rim sits seats is clean? Okay, what uh, John is asking about is the um, what sets the headspace on a 350 Legend. So the 350 Legend is a straight wall case, real popular in the especially in the parts of the country that mandate straight wall cases for deer hunting. But it's unusual in that it is it has got a rebated rim on it. So you can't use uh, the rim to stop the cartridge 
moving into the chamber. Something in that chamber has to stop the cartridge at the right place so it doesn't go in too far. That way, the primer strike works <laughs> and it goes off and it doesn't shove the bullet up into the rifling and where it could get stuck when you extract it and all these kinds of things. So head spacing is important. So how do you head space it? No rim like the 3030 has, no bottleneck like the 308 has or any of the bottleneck cartridges. So what stops it? The mouth, the rim of the case at the mouth where the bullet sits sticks out just far enough that they're able to carve a corresponding ledge inside of the chamber. So when that cartridge comes up against that ledge, that's what stops it. There's your headspace. So what this gentleman is asking, and very wisely, is if that gets dirty in there, fills up that ledge, what's going to stop it? Um, I would imagine that it would kind of jam in amongst the dirt and everything else in there. But the sensible answer is to keep it clean. You've got to get in there and clean it. Now, most of us are familiar with a, a bore snake for cleaning barrels and or the traditional cleaning rod. But those use jags and brushes that fit the bore size, not the chamber size. You need a chamber brush. And if you look at your cleaning kits or even just get on a shopping place for cleaning supplies and whatnot and gun parts, you should find some short rods on which you attach bigger brushes to fit the bore. And they will sell you a variety of sizes that fit. I generally make it work with, we'll say I've got a, a brush for a 44 mag. Uh, that's pretty good diameter. And then I wrap some cloth around it and I'm able to get up into the chamber and clean things out that way. You can get in there with a toothbrush and a lot of other things as well. But yes, definitely get in there and clean out that chamber because it is important to get the head spacing correct on those things. So that was a great point to bring up, John. Appreciate that. All right, this is someone calls himself Mr. Nobody, but I'll bet he's really somebody. Mr. Nobody asks, um, hey, Ron, can you do a video all about hunting knives? Oh, that's different. A video on hunting knives. I had never considered that. How many of you would be interested in a video on hunting knives? Lord knows I'm no expert on hunting knives, but I have used a lot of different hunting knives over the years. And I have developed some preferences. I, you know, I went starting off like most kids do with a Bowie knife, you know, something huge that you could be uh, chopping firewood with down to tiny little pen knives with which I've managed to clean some pretty big animals. And I found a pretty nice compromise. And I've also cut up my own meat for decades. We do all of our own butchering and stuff here. So I've learned by trial and error, which knives work well for me. So I guess I could uh, jump into that if there's enough interest. So if you guys are interested in that, write in and let me know. And if we want to cover knives, I could get a whole bunch of them out here and we can start talking about it. I might even interview some experts. I have some friends who are expert on knives. They work in the commercial meat packaging industry. So they all maybe have some additional insights. We could go there. Good question and good idea. Thank you, sir, Mr. Nobody. How, now, how about Joe? Joe asked me something about the Ruger. 204 Ruger video. Ron, how does the 204 Ruger compare to the 17 Remington? All right. We don't get a lot of questions about the 17 Remington. I'm glad this one has come up. The 17 Remington is pretty interesting. This was our first Centerfire 17 commercial cartridge. And I believe it's the 223 neck down. Might be the 222, but I'm pretty sure it's the 223 neck down to 17 caliber. The upshot is put a 25 grain bullet on top of that little thing 
and it's pushing it out there at about 4,100 feet per second, fast and, of course, flat. But then there's always that argument about those light bullets getting blown around by the wind. That is an issue, but really it's not the light weight of the bullet. That's part of it, but it's the ballistics coefficient of the bullet. Weight is a part of that. Form factor is a part of that. Diameter is a part of that. Step up to the 204 Ruger. You've got your 222 Remington Magnum case neck down. And uh, the result of that is you get a 32 grain bullet and push it around 4,200 feet per second. Um, so they're pretty close on their velocities, fairly close on the bullet weights. It's the the uh, BC that's going to make the difference here. So the 32 grain bullet, I think you're getting your BCs up around 0 0.230. And that 17, 25 grain bullet uh, seems to me they should be up around 0 0.210, somewhere in that vicinity. So they're not that far apart. You're going to have pretty similar trajectories. Uh, that means both the drop and the wind deflection. Now, wind deflection on that 17 is not going to be as bad as a lot of people guess. Um, so what does that leave us? The real difference is going to be in retained energy. With a heavier bullet, 32 grains, the 204 will deliver more energy downrange. Now, neither one of them is exactly <laughs> delivering massive energy levels at any distance. But the idea with these little varmint cartridges, of course, is to get your bullet out there precisely on a small target, whether it's some kind of a rodent out in the crop fields that you need to uh, reduce the population on, or let's say you're coyote hunting or something. So you need long range flat shooting and the bullet not tearing the hides up is really a big deal on coyotes and bobcats and other predators where you've got good, valuable fur. So a lot of us are considering that. And both the 17 and the 204, I think, do a great job that way. Those bullets are so small and uh, so frangible that when they land, they generally break up inside and don't exit and don't tear up the hides. So either one can be a great choice. I kind of went for the 204 Ruger myself just because I like to hand load and I don't like to try to hang on to those little 17 caliber bullets. It's tough enough to grab the 20s and keep them seated on top of the case until I can start pushing them in. Uh, but if you're just buying factory ammo or if you're a little more dexterous with your fingers than I am, the 17 should work well for you too. And you'll certainly have an unusual cartridge that not everybody up and down the street is going to own. All right, this is Christopher, and he says... Um, something about the 350 versus 3030 video. That's where I compared the 350 Legend to the 3030 Winchester because they're fairly close in their performance. He asks, "What are your thoughts on the 300 Hammer?" Here we go. Yeah, I also did a video comparing the 300 Blackout or Whisper. They're about the same thing uh, to the 3030, and a lot of people there said I really ought to look at that 300 Hammer. Um, and I knew about it, but I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. It's another one of these short cartridges designed for optimal performance in the AR-15 platform. So it's going to be short. I did look into it uh, some time ago, and by golly, it is significantly uh, more powerful than the 300 Blackout. Kind of surprised me. It's about a quarter inch longer in the case, so you get your bullets won't be seated as deep. And as long as you stay at about 150 grain down in your weights, you're probably optimizing and you end up getting, gosh, a good two to 300 feet per second more velocity over the uh, 300 blackout. 
which is pretty significant. And especially with a 150 grain bullet. And the other thing I learned about this thing is because of the increased powder volume from that longer case, you are able to use certain powders that will produce maximum gas pressures behind that heavier bullet. Use the 150 grain bullet and you really seem to maximize things by getting enough pressure and burning up that powder in a 16 and a half to 18 inch barrel, complete burn, maximum ballistic efficiency and trajectory and muzzle energy and everything else. And then you're shooting a long spire pointed bullet, probably even a boat tail. So you have a higher BC and you really outperform the 3030. You'll start off with about the same velocities. Figure around 2,200 to 2,300 feet per second from that hammer, 300 hammer, shooting 150 grain bullets. So that's right in the wheelhouse of a 30-30 with a 20-inch barrel. But the bullets are much more efficiently shaped, so you're going to retain a lot more energy downrange. They tell me that it's probably pretty good, effective deer cartridge out to 300 yards, possibly even 400, holding on to enough energy to get yourself out there. So it's maximized, obviously, I said just at the start for the AR-15 platform. And if that's your rifle, if that's what you like to shoot, and you're looking for the most efficient and effective uh, 30 caliber or deer cartridge of any kind, whether you're considering a 6.5 or a 6 or anything else, a lot to be said for that 150 grain bullet um, at that velocity. So something you might want to consider. Now, I'm guessing that a few people are starting to load that in some really short mini action, bold actions. Um, that might be viable too. So you might want to look into it for a bold action. All right. That was a good question on the hammer. Now, what else do we have here? Oh, this, this is a good one. I've got to talk about this one. Wild Weasel says, hey, I've read some on that so-called knock off or knockout factor, especially hunting big game. It's the, the Taylor KO factor, the TKOF formula. Is that still of value or still relevant today? Thanks for your informative videos. Appreciate them a lot. And greetings from the Netherlands. So Wild Weasel is from the Netherlands, and he's asking a great question about the Taylor knockout formula. I think a lot of us have heard about that, TKO, Taylor knockout. And it's like, whoa, according to the Taylor knockout chart, this cartridge throwing this bullet does not have a high enough rating to be a real knockout cartridge. I disagree with all of this, and this is why. I've read John Pondoro Taylor, his book, he's, hit, he's written several, uh, but he talks about this TKO idea that he came up with. And it's pretty sensible and it makes sense for what he was advocating, which was brain shots on elephants. He was an elephant hunter and or poacher. He is a little bit shady working on the border of a couple of countries over there. And uh, he, he was known to step over the line and take elephants where he wasn't supposed to be. But he was really a dedicated um, rifleman. He was doing a lot of research. He shot a lot of different rifles, different cartridges, different bullets. He was really checking things out, trying to make sense of it all. And what he noticed over the years was that if he tried a brain shot to drop an elephant in his tracks and he just missed the brain, the bigger bullets with more energy would knock them out so he could finish them off. So that's how he started rating these bullets. He would shoot, knock an animal down like that, time how long it took for it to wake up again, get a general idea of what was effective. That's where he came up with his knockout factor. Big heavy bullets knocked out the animal. 
could knock him out for a few seconds, for several minutes, and he built his formula based on that. So bullet mass, bullet velocity equals energy. You've got some momentum going on, but that's mostly to get your bullet to the target. So that doesn't matter as much. The problem with trying to swing that over into deer, elk, moose, or any other animal that you are body shooting is that you don't get the same response. He's talking about knocking out, and you've got to be close to the central nervous system for that to work. And as anyone who's shot an animal in the spinal column, you shoot, say, from the top of the shoulders forward and you hit the spine, you pretty much have got them. They're just lights out. Obviously, in the head, in the brain, same thing. Shoot them in the spine behind that withers area above the shoulders and you will paralyze their backside, but not necessarily kill them instantly. Um, and then these bigger bullets really don't make any difference. I've seen guys do this killing shot with an arrow carrying perhaps 140 foot pounds of energy. But if that arrow hits the spinal column in front of the withers like that, it's dead. So the energy doesn't really matter. You can do it with a 22 long rifle. So Applying that knockout value of Taylor's to chest shot big game animals, I just don't think it makes any sense. If I'm missing something, you're welcome to write in and complain and straighten me out. But I just fail to see how it would apply. So that's my take on the knockout. And that means we've just knocked out another podcast. So I can once again thank you for all of your questions and your corrections. And I look forward to more of the same at our next episode. Uh, let me know what you think. And let me know about those hunting knives if we want to get involved on that. I might do that on my regular channel where I'll be able to display all the knives and demonstrate a few things. And I might even have some cuts of meat around here that we could work on to show something on why we're preferring one thing over another. So something to think about. If we get enough requests for it, we will do it. Until the next time, we will uh, wish you all the best and remind everyone once again to hunt honest and shoot straight. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.